You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI podcast, your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tax Smart REI podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about how to legally reduce taxes on W-2 and other active income. So this is an ever-popular topic. Everybody's always asking about it, and there's a lot of shady information online. And today, we're hoping to demystify it and give you the big rocks, the big things you can really use. But before we dive right into that, I just do want to reiterate what we have been talking about over the last number of episodes. And that is if you zoom out, right? Just zoom out, take the decades long view instead of the year long view, right? And look at that if you invest in rental properties over decades and you use tax smart strategies like cost segregation, depreciation, you're going to be able to build tax advantage income, right? So your cash flow is going to be tax free. That's going to reduce your effective tax rate. Then when you need to sell out of properties, you can use a 1031 exchange and other strategies to minimize and defer your capital gains taxes, right? And then if you don't want to sell property, but you need to tap into that equity, you can use a cash out refinance. And by the way, I know interest rates are soaring, but real estate is like one of the best assets to get collateralized with debt. You're going to get the best rates often on real estate related assets. So the point I'm trying to make here is that even though using strategies to offset W-2 and active income seems like the best thing to do, that's short-term, right? You want to think long-term, think about real estate over the long-term. But enough about that. We've talked about this enough. We're going to dive right into these strategies. So what we're going to be covering is going to be tax deductions versus credits, so you understand what the difference between a tax deduction and a credit is. Then we're talking about real estate strategies to offset W-2 and active income. Then we'll talk about some general strategies. Then we'll talk about the basics. Then we'll talk about a few tax credits. And then uh, you'll know everything there is to know about reducing taxes on W-2 income. All right, so let's dive into this. So first things first, to understand how to reduce taxes on W-2 income, the first thing or an other active or non-passive income is going to be to understand the difference between a tax deduction and a tax credit, okay? So tax deductions reduce the amount of income you pay taxes on. So during the year, you're going to make some income and you're going to pay taxes on that income. This could be some deductions, right? So those deductions reduce the amount of income you pay taxes on. So for example, made $100,000. If you had a $20,000 deduction, you're going to pay taxes on $80,000. And whatever those taxes are, you're going to pay, right? Now, the difference between a deduction and a credit a credit actually reduces the amount of taxes you pay. So if you had to pay $20,000 in taxes and you had $10,000 credit that you're eligible to take, then you're only going to pay taxes on $10,000. You're only pay $10,000 in taxes, all right? So just to recap that one more time, a deduction reduces the amount of income you pay taxes on. A credit reduces the amount of taxes you pay, all right? So let's start with the best. Let's start with the best first, real estate strategies that will help you reduce tax on W-2 and active income. Well, we have to start with real estate professional status and the short-term rental loophole, right? That's everybody's favorite. I mean, that's the only strategy. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, you realistically- There are no strategies, guys. The only strategy is real estate professional status, short-term rental. I'm just kidding, obviously, but gosh, that's what it feels like sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. And kind of long story short here, if you want to learn more about these strategies, 
go down the podcast feed, search for episodes that have reps in the beginning or STR in the beginning, and you'll be able to dive into the series we created that breaks these down in much greater detail. But long story short, the real estate professional status allows you to take losses from your rental properties and use them to offset the income that you're generating from non-passive activities. And that is typically a deduction. That would be in the right. deduction category. And to qualify, you need to spend more than 750 hours and more than half your total working time in a real property trader business. All right. And if you're working a full-time W-2 job, then I hate to break your heart. It's highly unlikely you're going to qualify just based on the hundreds of tax court cases that exist where taxpayers have tried to do this and failed over and over and over again. So the good news is your spouse might be able to qualify. And if you file a joint return, then the losses from your real estate, if your spouse qualifies, can offset the non-passive income. So that's kind of the real estate professional status in a nutshell. Yeah. And so if you can't qualify as a real estate professional, then your losses are passive. Passive losses can only offset passive income or gain on sale from passive activities. I We keep saying that or gain on sale from passive activities in like clockwork, like month after month after month, we get new clients or new prospects that are filling out our web forms and and we'll ask them, why are you looking to switch CPAs? And we'll kind of inquire about their situation. And then we'll come to the realization that their accountant is not allowing them to use passive losses to offset the gain on sale from a passive activity. So, you know, again, passive losses can offset the gain on sale from a passive activity. Just because rental A generated a loss does not mean that it cannot offset the gain on sale from rental B or syndication investment A. Um, so just, you know, scrutinize that one. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, passive losses can offset passive income and gains on gain on sale from passive activities. But if you are like most investors, most newer investors, you have a W-2 job and you are investing in real estate on the side, and that's your only passive activity is the rentals, right? So when those passive activities generate losses, those are passive losses. You don't have any other passive income or gain on sale from passive activities. So those passive losses get suspended and carried forward. So that's why qualifying as a real estate professional is important for those that can qualify because it effectively moves your rental out of this passive bucket, as we like to call it, into the non-passive bucket where your W-2 income is, your business income is, if you're materially participating in a business. So at that point, if you're a real estate professional and materially participate in your rentals, now your rental losses can offset your regular, you know, I don't like using that term, but your regular income. So that's kind of the difference between qualifying as a real estate professional versus not. Now, the short-term rental loophole, loophole in air quotes, some people like that term, some people don't. And we've debated if it's actually a loophole or not, so we're not going to get into it. But we have a whole series on this. We have a whole series on reps and short-term rentals. So go back to our podcast episodes and check them out. But short-term rental strategy, you buy a short-term rental, you materially participate in the short-term rental, and now you can use the losses as non-passive losses against your W-2 income and your business income. Again, as long as you've materially participated, you do not have to qualify as a real estate professional to implement the short-term rental strategy. That's why everybody's talking about that. So important to understand that like long-term rentals or really any rental with an average period of more than seven days where you're not providing significant personal services, that is a rental where you have to qualify as a real estate professional and materially participate. Any rental with an average period of customer use of seven days or less, you don't have to be a real estate professional. You just have to materially participate to make it non-passive 
which just means that I can use the tax loss to offset my regular income. And I will also throw this big caveat out there that these audits are on the rise. Uh, I don't actually have any empirical statistical data to back that up, but we have seen more inquiries about these audits on short-term rentals and real estate professional status. So if you are the person who went into a community group, whether online or in person, and everybody's talking about how they're going to be real estate professional, or everybody's talking about how they're, you know, qualifying as a short-term rental, you know, whatever, and you got all excited and you bought into it and you did it, but maybe you didn't do all the steps you needed to do. Now is the time to work with an accountant, a tax pro that understands this stuff to figure out how to substantiate that deduction or figure out if you should go back and amend the return and remove the deduction. You know, I, I think that there are a lot of people that get involved in groups and everybody says, we're going to do this. And they find an accountant that allows them to do it, even though they don't furnish or they don't substantiate it or they could never have substantiated it. So people that are at risk for this are people that one, don't have a time log. If you don't have a time log and you're claiming real estate professional status in the short-term rental loophole, you're toast. All right. Like there's no other way to say it. You're just, you're in for a really rough ride if you ever get pulled for an audit. And if you're working with an accountant who just takes your word for this and doesn't require you to furnish a time log, you should probably move on from that accountant. We require all of our clients to give us a time log so that we can substantiate this one, scrutinize it, but then also substantiate the deduction on the return. So if you're working with an accountant that's not doing that, guess what? They're not doing that with every other one of their clients too. And when one of those clients get audited, if the IRS sees opportunity, they might go and audit a lot more of those clients that that accountant has. All right. So you got to be really careful with the service provider that you're using, right? You got to have a time log and that time log has to show that you spent a lot of time working on your rental real estate business. and if the time that you have logged is primarily educational, networking events, listening to podcasts, if it's primarily research, right? Oh, I spent all day looking on the MLS or realtor.com or or underwriting deals, or I flew out to you know this other state to go and look at it. That's all research, right? So if your time is primarily education and research and investment level time, right? Time that any investor would spend on any property that they buy, such as underwriting deals, all that all that acquisition process, that's all investor level time, you are at risk for losing if you were ever to be audited, probably significant risk. So my suggestion to you, not to turn this into a doom and gloom podcast, because that's not the point, but um, we the reason we're harping on it is because real estate professional status and short-term rental loopholes are pushed so hard from marketing gurus and influencers and nobody discloses the risks. Nobody talks about what happens when you get audited and you can't substantiate it. Now you have to pay a failure to pay penalty, which accrues at 0.5% per month. And it tops out at 25% of the unpaid tax that you should have paid if this decision gets reversed. You have to pay a 20% accuracy-related penalty, which is 20% of the unpaid tax. And you have to pay interest, which is now, I think the, the midterm AFRs are like 6.5%. It's expensive <laughs> to lose this. So the point is, is that now is the time because I'm telling you, we're seeing an influx of requests to help with these types of audits. So now is the time to figure out, can I substantiate this? And if not, what do I do about that? And if you want to talk with us about that, please feel free to contact us. 
uh, you can hit us up at contact at therealestatecpa.com. Put episode 246 in the subject line, say episode 246 reps question or concern or whatever, and we will make sure to take a look at that with you. Okay. All right. Enough of my doom and gloom talk. (laughs) One more thing on the short-term rental loophole before we move on. All right. It's funny. I got an email this week and the headline was too many rich people bought short-term rentals and now they're all sitting vacant. Okay. So it was the the email was like a short-term rental investment company. And they're basically talking about how everybody ran out and bought these short-term rentals and not operating them properly. And now there's an oversupply. So I don't know how true that is. I did not look much further into it. I just found it very interesting that that was the go-to headline that they were using. So it's just another risk about investing in some of these properties. If you're just buying them for the tax, if you're letting the tax tail wag the dog, then you might be getting yourself in some investment trouble as well, not just it, from a tax perspective. And it's easy to let the tax tail wag the dog, right? Oh, it's a million dollar cabin. And uh, all my buddies in this group say that I can do the short-term rental loophole and I can bonus depreciate it. So I get a $200,000 write-off. And when I apply that $200,000 write-off against my W-2 income, it saves me, I guess my W-2 and federal and state taxes, it saves me 80K. What's the worst that can happen? You know, even if the property goes down 80K, I've still made out like a bandit. But, you know, it's very easy to convince yourself that you don't really have to underwrite these deals very well. And I echo what Tom says, just don't let the tax away the dog apply the same investment logic and thesis that you would to any deal that you acquire. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's very important for what we're talking about right now as we move into the general strategies. All right. Next one is working interests in oil and gas. So there's a special carve out under section 469 specifically for this that makes it non-passive regardless of whether you, you materially participate or not. So basically, when you make an investment in working interest in oil and gas, during the first year, there's usually significant losses that get generated by these investments, and they're going to be passed through to you, and you can use these to offset your W-2 or other active income. Now, the issue with these investments are they're often, and I, look, I was on a CPE presentation, it's, it's professional education for CPAs that we have to take. And one of the people from the oil and gas company said, they said that we typically do not advise people to use these unless there's a significant tax advantage because there's not a big investment upside. And this is the person who's selling these investments, okay, who said this on this presentation. So what I'm trying to make here is that working interest in oil and gas might have good tax upside, right? But they're often, in many cases, not all, but often not very good from an investment perspective. And this is straight from the horse's mouth. So this is something to keep in mind. Hey, real quick, if you're a longtime listener of the show, then you know we give all of our tax secrets away for free from how to use the real estate professional status and short-term rental loophole to save thousands of dollars in taxes and just about everything between we don't hold anything back. And that's because our goal is to help as many real estate investors as possible, reduce taxes and build tax advantage wealth, regardless of budget. And the only way we're able to help more real estate investors is if you can rate, review, and share the podcast. If you could take that one small action, just drop us a review. It'll take like 10 seconds. It will help more real estate investors become tax smart. We appreciate your support. And now back to the show. The caveat there, though, is that we've we've seen some of these do really well. So I, I don't want the message to be like, don't go and do this. But with any investment that you make, make sure that you do the due diligence. 
Yeah. And just make sure you, you understand what you're getting yourself into. There's also some risks there from an asset protection standpoint, as you will have unlimited liability during the first year that you're in it, because you'll be a general partner. Uh, so just something to keep in mind. But like Brandon said, they're not all bad. Not saying you shouldn't do it, but just something to be aware of. All right. So we're going to move right along. So another way, another general strategy is to materially participate in a business right, with a lot of depreciable assets, such as a laundromat or a car wash or a fitness center, assuming you own the assets. And the reason for this is because that businesses are not passive by default, like real estate tends to be. Real estate, if you meet one of the seven material participation tests, will be non-passive. In fact, most businesses are non-passive. So this is just investing or buying into a business or buying a business or starting a business. that has a lot of fixed assets related to it. And this is, in fact, this is kind of what the short-term rental loophole is. It is under this category, effectively. So moving right along, another one, and this is for high-income earners out there, it's non-qualified deferred compensation plans. I'm not going to go too much into depth on this one because it does get pretty complicated. But what this allows you to do is to defer your income into later years. So if you're generating a substantial amount of income, you can say, you know, I'm not going to take that income today. I'm going to put it into one of these non-qualified deferred compensation plans, and I'm going to get paid out on that later. And what that does is it allows you to shift your income from your high income years where you might be in that 37% tax bracket into years where you might not be earning as high as income and deferring it. Now, there are some risks here. If your company goes bankrupt, it's a company that is providing your non- deferred compensation plans goes bankrupt, you might lose this benefit. So there are some risks here, but it is a way to do it. It is not uncommon. These things do happen. So uh, these are uh, these are common plans we, you will see in place. That's just another way. And now we're going to move into some of the more basic ways. Okay. Now, these are the ways that you've heard of. These are the ways that you go to your tax professional and they tell you, or you Google how to reduce tax on W-2 income. You'll find a million one articles telling you how to do it. All right. And that's contributing to a traditional IRA. Contributing to a traditional IRA can help you reduce taxes on W-2 and other active income if you're under certain income thresholds. Once you're above those income thresholds and they're indexed for inflation and change every year, then they will be non-deductible. But it is one way to do it. And when you do increase above those thresholds and it becomes non-deductible, there's a tactic called the backdoor Roth IRA contribution. So, and, and we're not going to go into it, but there is, you still have the ability to get money into an IRA it just has to be a Roth IRA. Oh, well, I mean, it doesn't have to be, you could make a non-deductible contribution to your traditional IRA if you so choose. But if you wanted to get money into a Roth IRA, that's already been taxed. And this is like one of your only other options to do it or to utilize this capital. Uh, you could explore something like that. Um, don't do that without solid guidance because there are landmines that you can step on if you're not careful. So kind of following the theme of traditional IRAs, and there's also 401ks, right? So we can make the contributions, get the employer match. You know, we, We're big believers of make the contribution, get the employer match, and then decide if you want to keep contributing after that. But get that employer match because it's part of the compensation factor for the vast majority of companies. But what we should also mention is self-directed IRAs and solo 401ks. So a self-directed IRA, you know, it could be a SEP IRA where you can be running a business and a solo 401k for that matter. You can be running a business and if your business is profitable enough, you can actually contribute $66,000, up to $66,000 to these plans, self-directed IRAs, SEP IRAs, and uh, solo 401ks. 
So you can take a significant amount of your business profits, basically, and contribute to your retirement accounts and get a deduction for it, a significant deduction for it. So if you are running a business and you are netting a good amount of money, good amount being high five figures, probably at the least, then get with your accountant and explore SEP IRAs and solo 401ks. If you go the IRA route, explore self-directing the uh, the investments. I know a lot of the investors in our network self-direct their investments. That way they can invest the money that they're saving into real estate deals, maybe as a passive partner. So that's something that we've talked about before as well, but just another option for you if you're running a business. Right, right. And uh, 403Bs typically fall under the same category, very similar to 401Ks. So uh, it's another one out there. I know that's like for more education. There's And there's other ones too, but retirement accounts typically will help you uh, get uh, deductions that could be to help you reduce your your W-2 and active income. Now we have, next we have HSAs or health savings accounts. And if you have a high deductible healthcare plan, you can qualify for a HSA and you can contribute to the HSA and the HSA will help you reduce taxes on your active income. So very straightforward there. Then we have itemized deductions, right? So if you could take the standard deduction, the standard deduction uh, will, it's just, it's a deduction against your income, right? But then if you itemize your deductions, you could deduct things like mortgage interest, state taxes, property taxes, charitable contributions, and you can make significant amount of charitable contributions if you wanted to, if you so desired uh, to significantly reduce your income. So those are some basic ways to do it. Now, there's some other basic things you could do, especially under that itemized category, but that is pretty much, in a nutshell, a big bulk of how you can reduce taxes on this form of income. Now, we're going to move into tax credits, okay? So tax credits, remember, deductions reduce the amount of income that you pay taxes on, and credits reduce the amount of taxes that you pay. And there's a few credits out there that probably are on people's radar right now. The EV credit, the electric vehicle credit has been popular for some time. That is a credit that you can go out there and qualify for. Then there's the low income housing tax credit. And you know, something very interesting about the low income housing tax credit, I did some research on this recently preparing for this podcast, is that it's a passive activity credit. And you typically can't take passive activity credits unless you're actively involved, but there is a carve out for it. There's a short window and that's, you can take the amount of credit up to $25,000 worth of a deduction for you. So let me give you an example on how that would work. If you were in the 37% tax bracket, then a $25,000 deduction would be worth $9,250 to you. That's the amount of tax credit you could take for the low-income housing tax credit against your income if you are passively involved, if you're not a real estate professional. Are there income limits to that? I don't believe so. I think that's just that's just the carve-out. If you have it, then you're able to do Well, that. so where are all the solar guys getting their details from? Because I, I see like this proliferation recently of solar deals that people are pushing and they say you get these big tax credits not only do you get these big tax credits but you also get all this depreciation expense that you get to write off against your regular income yeah so for the solar credits if you do take a solar credit off of like a primary residence like if you do qualify for a solar credit on your primary that's going to be able to offset your tax liability but when it comes to rental properties you will be subject to the passive activity rules so it's just something to be uh, to note that the solar credit may not help you offset your tax liability if uh, you do not qualify as a real estate professional. Yeah. So like how this applies is, again, I, I know that there's like a proliferation of solar deals being pushed in the market right now. And you got to tread carefully because I would say oftentimes the credits 
that are being promoted to investors are not going to be able to be utilized against your regular income. They're passive activity credits. Okay. And I even saw one solar sponsor recently give a presentation and tell everybody the credits that you receive, you can make them non-passive if you participate in the deal. And in his way of participating was like everybody flies out to the deal and walks the solar farm and then you fly home. <laughs> and I was like, I, that is not how the material participation rules work because you know if you're an investor first off if you're on the lp side the only way you can material or there's you can materially participate like three ways but you got to hit basically you got to hit the 500 hour test you know flying out and walking the solar farm for 500 hours is not going to get you to the material participation threshold that's needed you got to be actively managing the deal right you got to be on the gp side you got to be running things that's material participation so just be careful again we put this stuff out and we harp on things to educate you, to protect you, because there are marketers and gurus that do not give you all the information. And so you have to build your own knowledge base, your brain trust, if you will. And we hope that we can be a part of that to help you make better decisions. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And if you come on board as a private client of ours, whenever we're doing tax advisory, whenever we're advising on positions, we're doing our research, crossing our T's, dotting our I's, making sure that your positions are bona fide, right? And you're not making careless mistakes that could end you up in an audit and cost you penalties, back taxes, and interest. So if you are interested in becoming a client, head over to therealestatecpa.com, click that big get started button. And we'd love to learn more about your situation, see how we can help. But having said that, this is about it. These are the major strategies. These are the big strategies that you can use to offset these forms of income. So if you do have any questions, you could, again, head on over to the Facebook group, www.taxsmartinvestors.com slash Facebook, join the Facebook group, post your question in there, and we'd be happy to take a look and see if the strategy you're proposing actually makes sense, if it holds water. So that's it for today's episode, and we'll catch you next week on the next episode of TaxSmart REI. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.